0: Sean Priest has been the principal at Sequoia High School in Redwood City, California since 2014. He helped drive and strengthen a culture of equity and systemic reform in order to serve the large and diverse Bay Area population of students and families. Sequoia's priorities under Sean's leadership have been shifting grading practices towards greater equity, expanding inclusion in the school's IB program, implementing mindfulness practices school wide, and developing future leaders in education. He completed a Stanford Principal Fellowship in 2017. And lead school accreditation teams for the Western Association of Schools and Colleges. Prior to becoming a school leader, Sean taught Spanish and Avid for eight years. For a reference, this episode was recorded August 18th, 2021. Let's hear from Sean Priest. <music> I'm Lindsay Lyons and I love helping school communities envision bold possibilities, take brave action to make those dreams a reality and sustain an inclusive anti-racist culture where all students thrive. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach, educational consultant and leadership scholar. If you're a leader in the education world, whether you're a principal, superintendent, instructional coach, or a classroom teacher excited about school-wide change like I was, you are a leader. And if you enjoy nerding out about the latest educational books and podcasts, if you're committed to a lifelong journey of learning and growth and being the best version of yourself, you're going to love the Time for Teachership podcast. Let's dive in. John Priest, welcome to the Time for Teachership podcast.
1: Hello. Thanks for having me. This is awesome.
0: Thank you so much for being here. I'm excited for our conversation today. I know I just read your professional bio. Is there anything else you would like to say to further introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Only that I really feel, and this is every day, that I have the best job in the world. Um, There's no two days that are alike. Being a principal is always exciting. It's challenging, but those challenges are worthy and the problems that we solve are ones that help make people's lives better. And over the years, um, I've gotten to know so many amazing people on their good days and on their bad days. um, They've definitely enriched my life.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love that. And so one of the things we like to start with on the show is this idea of freedom dreaming and kind of the dreams that we have for education. And I I absolutely love Dr. Patina Love's quote, about freedom dreaming, where she says dreams grounded in the critique of injustice are really kind of what we're talking about. And so with that quote in mind, what is the big dream that you hold for the field of education?
1: Well, for me, it's all about empowerment. Um, I I think about our students coming in and we use this phrase equity and access equity and outcomes a lot uh, as part of our, um, you know, discussions around our values and how they inform what we do. And so for me, it's all about empowerment. It's all about helping uh, students understand what their story is um, uh, and and how to, I think, draw from that story.
0: I love that. That's so great. And I, I love that equity and access equity and outcomes as well. When you think about kind of the equity journey that you and your school have kind of taken and the practices that you embody as, as an educational community, were there times where people had to like shift their minds from a more traditional grading, traditional assessment, traditional practices to what you have now? Or was you know the mindset kind of already present in so many of the educators and it just kind of has has been refined and, and honed and flourished? I, I'm curious about this uh, mindset piece because I think for so many listeners who might be in traditional schools or have colleagues who are, you know, traditionally grading and they're trying to experiment with something different. You know, what is that mindset shift that maybe needs to occur in a traditional setting um, to be able to have more equity in assessment and equity in outcomes?
1: Yeah, I, for us, th- what, what was successful was really grounding the conversations from the beginning in values. So, I, I you know, I never came to my staff and said, here's what we're going to do because I think it's the right thing. Um, I feel like sources of authority uh, are at their best, are you know, strongest when they are grounded in sort of a moral imperative, you know, I mean, I, I can get the building to get out onto the football field by turning on the alarm and going onto the loudspeaker, because everybody acknowledges that my authority as the principal is <laughs> to be able to evacuate the building and keep people safe. But when it comes to actually changing classroom practices and, and having people who have maybe been doing something for, for some way for their entire career, and are used to that even before they started into teaching, those are, that's a much different conversation. And so to ground those changes in, hey, I'm the principal, this is what I want to do, or even, hey, your department members are doing this, I need you to come along, um, it, you're going to have a very low rate of return. So what we've done from the beginning is, is sort of uh, exercised in conversations about values. And I've been really explicit. I frame my values around questions, you know, so I'm, I'm saying, like, I, I, need, I need people to know that to be on the same page as me, you're affirmatively answering the question. Do you believe that all students want to be successful in their learning? I I mean, that's just like the fundamental for me, right? It's not just students, it's all people. People want to be successful in the things they set about uh, to learn and to master. Um, Otherwise they wouldn't set about to learn them to master. Now that's not always the same thing as being successful in school, but it pretty much uh, I think is true across the board, whether it's skateboarding, video games or uh, calculus. And then the other question that, that I always follow that one up with is, do you believe that there are things outside of uh, a student's control that are impeding that learning or impeding that success? And so now it gets really interesting because the third question is, do you believe that it's our, our duty as public educators to either uh, dismantle those obstacles or boost kids over those obstacles or take a sledgehammer and try and crash down those obstacles so that our students can break through? And and for me, that's what's exciting about um you know, working in this field. That's what's exciting about public education. That's why I've said for years that public education is really the, the front line of the civil rights movement um, in, in this country, certainly. And so answering affirmatively to all those things leads then to where I think the biggest kind of intersection, when you think about what are those obstacles and where what are the roots of those obstacles, whether they're cultural, whether they're systemic within education, whether they're socioeconomic, whether they're cognitive, Whatever those obstacles are that impede students from their learning, for me, it then becomes a question of, okay, let's let's look at our grading practices and how how we grade, right? It, unless it's purely a reflection and, and then the way that we give feedback, unless it's purely a reflection of how successful the student has been in mastering the standards. Um, what is it? What is it then? Is it reinforcing some of those systemic um, obstacles? Uh, is it is it reinforcing some of those cognitive obstacles? And then, then we can start to have a real conversation that's that's grounded in this moral imperative, right? I believe I answered yes to those first three questions. Why am I still giving extra credit for um, tissues, for Kleenex boxes? <laughs> right? So that's, that's kind of how, how I ground those, those, those uh, equity conversations. What's been really cool though, is that over the past two years, And again, you work in a community that is is broad, at least for me at a large comprehensive high school and where we're at, where we're situated. We serve community pockets of a a large community that are going to come with their own uh, ideas about social justice, about equity, about public education. And so sometimes uh, and this has been always been kind of a frustrating thing for me um, because I take language very seriously. Sometimes I found myself kind of couching these conversations in a sort of euphemisms that I would may, maybe rather not use. I'd rather be more explicit. And so what's been cool about the last couple of years is that we've just been calling white supremacy culture, white supremacy culture. We've just been calling racism, racism. <laughs> and so that's been nice because now I think for anyway, for our staff and, and you know, we, having been here for a while, I've, we've been able to hire and orient enough teachers around our values so that now we're kind of on, this, on the same page in a, a, you know, a big way for a school with 130 teachers um, to, to really have these explicit conversations and really ground these, these tough, hey, I'm going to change what I'm doing this year conversations in because I have to unless I want to be continuing to uphold some of these systemic issues. So that, that's been powerful.
0: That's amazing. So I love the idea of framing it as questions, values as questions. I think that's such a great way to engage people in that conversation. If the initial language is like a a barrier to engagement and then having that language paired, that's like really precise and honest paired with the questions, I think is a lovely kind of combination to, to engage teachers in that journey. Um, and I also just love the quote that you said, that education is the front line of the civil rights movement. I think that's so profound and so much of what we're doing, right? If we're not educating for justice, what are we really doing here? So, so I think that's yeah. really great. Um, you talked a bit about assessment, and I know we want to dive into that conversation a bit more. What does that you know, look like to have equitable assessment? And so thinking about kind of the the brave actions that it takes to kind of continue an educational community in the vein of justice and equity, um, what steps can leaders take, particularly when thinking about grading and assessment? You know, what does it mean to be uh, anti-racist in how we grade or assess students? What does it mean to be equitable um, in assessments?
1: Well, I think, you know, the most important thing is that your, your, the, the grades that you give and how you determine what those grades are, and the and the feedback that you give students about how they can, um, you know, demonstrate their mastery, right? As it connects to those grades, um, has to be consistent, um, and has to be just just about the le- just about the learning, right? It, it's, and it's really hard because what I've found over the years is that very few practices that I would call inequitable, especially around grading and assessment come from a place of wanting to uphold inequities. In most cases, what I've found is that, you know, the the kinds of things teachers are doing, you know, things like participation grades that are highly subjective are are a lot of times a way for teachers to say, well, this kid doesn't do that well on, on my tests. And I don't, but I don't want to give him a D. I want to give him a B. So let me just give, give him a huge participation score, which, you know okay you you feel better because the student got to be but in reality that's 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 a like almost designed for that one kid right as opposed and maybe you you put that in place because your first or second year as a teacher you did find yourself going through at the quarter or at the semester and there was that one kid you're like I can't I just don't feel right about this I got to switch things up and have this you know a nebulous uh subjective way that I can I can sort of um alter grades when it comes time to at the end of the semester so that I can, but it's just then over time that that becomes a a practice. And and how much does that erode from its initial intent to being a a way for you or or for a teacher to, to, you know, uphold practices that ultimately, you know, don't, don't help kids or don't help your school and your school culture be more equitable. So those are, and, and so those are really hard, to let go of as well, because you you see, I come from this place at uh, from a good place. Um, the other one I think that's really tough for teachers to let go of is the is the motivation piece, right? And the idea of homework, um, which to me has always been a uh, you know a, a social justice issue, right? Homework is is an equity issue, and whether or not a student has um, a job, especially when you're talking about high school, you know, I was in a I was in a U.S. history class with 11th graders last year, or last week, sorry. And just, I had a few minutes to, I was covering for a teacher and they were done with their assignments. So I just started talking with them. And I said, how many of you all had a summer job? You know, like raise your hand if you worked this summer. And um, and I knew, I mean, I had an idea that there was gonna be a lot of students who raised their hands. And sure enough, it was a good 80% of the kids in the class. So then we started talking about where they'd worked, Boys and Girls Club, Chick-fil-A, all, all over the place. You had a whole range of, and, and so to understand, Yeah, everybody's working, everybody's proud of that work. You know, that was the other thing is that the kids lit up, they all got really quiet and listened to each other as they were talking about what their summer jobs were, right? And so this idea, especially when you're dealing with high schoolers, that everybody's just going home. Everybody's going to a a desk and turning on their lamp in their room and opening their cracking open the books and getting to work. And if they not, if they're not doing that, they don't care about their education, right? That's that's a really archaic idea. If I reframe it that way, everybody's gonna roll their eyes and say, well, that's not what I believe. But if if the if homework has a 40%, 60%, 30%, 10% value, you are in some way acknowledging that that's what you believe, right? And if you're saying, well, if I don't put a grade onto it, then the kids won't do their homework. um, You know, it it sounds great. Everybody's like, yeah, "Yeah," if you don't put any value on it, and there are kids who who purely do homework for the value of it on as it affects their grade, because that's how they've been trained. (laughs) And they're they're good at learning. And there's other students though, and a lot of students, who getting a zero on the homework does not mean oh shoot I better do my homework tonight it doesn't change anything because maybe they don't have that kind of choice or those kinds of opportunities or resources or maybe it's just not a motivator so I think kind of disabusing some of those notions right that kids will not continue to work because we've seen examples um, within models that don't grade you know that don't provide value to homework where that where again that peer just that peer uh, equitable model where the grade truly is a reflection of how Well, the student has been able to demonstrate mastery of the standards. Here are the things that everybody is going to learn in this class. Here are the ways that you're going to be able to demonstrate. And there are lots of ways that you're going to be able to demonstrate it. And as few of them as possible are time bound. So in other words, if you can master this, you can show me that you've mastered this in October, great. But if you can't do it until March, also great, because we've got the whole year together. And the most important thing is that you've mastered this standard at the end of it. Now you're starting to open up conversations about what are ways that we're actually differentiating for some of those cognitive differences in students, linguistic differences in students, and again some of those things socioeconomic or cultural where kids don't have necessarily the same amount of time and resources at home to do things like homework. Um, so those are those are again those are the conversations that you open up when you start really I think giving uh, staff time to step back and reflect on what their practices are really are. Because I think that's the other thing is we're just in such a fast paced environment. We don't take a lot of time to step step back and say, okay, we are going to really look at what we do. We've been lucky um, through our uh, education foundation, we've been able to fund a release day for every department. So each department is pulled out of school once a year. And we've done that for gosh, the past, I think, 13 years or so here at Sequoia. It's been, it's been a while. And and for, um, many of those years, we, we will, we've looked at grading explicitly, right. And the the conversation always starts with like a little self-assessment. So just on your own, everybody take your laptop and go and go through this questionnaire. And then let's look at the results and really think about how, what you do aligns with what you profess to be your values. And that's where you get the aha moment. Then it's not me saying, "Hey, I need you to stop doing this practice." It's the teacher saying, "I need to stop doing this practice because it's it's actually harming kids."
0: I love so much of what you just said. Particularly, I love that you were able to have that release day for each department. I know as a teacher, when I finally got to a school where we would we would have a day, we would usually use it as curriculum development. Um, like we're we're in a department, we're brainstorming the cool curriculum that we're you know personalizing for our students and. And I, and I love that also, I think it really connects and you were kind of speaking to this beyond just like the grading and how you actually give the reflection on a student's piece of work and, and what it is you grade. It's also creating the opportunities for students to demonstrate mastery in a variety of ways, which is also curriculum development in a way, right? It's It's where do we enable students to have multiple opportunities and multiple means. And I love that you said it's not time bound because I think that's the other thing that teachers who are kind of shifting to that idea are struggling with, or I've heard that they struggle with is, but I need all of my class to be on, you know, this particular unit and this particular moment in time so that we can move on together. Whereas that's just not how student brains work. (laughs) And so, you know, recognizing that it's going to take people more time and also recognizing, you know, these are the skills, as you said, and these are the standards that we're assessing. Um, being really thoughtful too and what we're choosing to focus on and center and have multiple opportunities throughout the year to practice and demonstrate mastery on, I think is a huge kind of planning piece to this this equitable assessment work um, and also very necessary if we want to have equity in how we grade. because if we say there's like you know 500 standards that we're going to you know assess students on, it's just impossible to give 500 assessments multiple times for each standard. And so it's really, I think that priority conversation sounds like, um, it might be, I'm wondering, I guess, is that part of the conversation when people have those release days of how do we plan for this? How do we plan the standards and the assessment pieces?
1: Yes. And, and, you know, we, we've been, um, lucky here at Sequoia to have very, very, um, smart and strategic, uh, department chairs who have partnered in creating, you know, the sort of the the next, um, you know, step in a day like that, right? So we lay out, here's how the day is going to start. And then where do we envision this going for your department? And each department is kind of in its own place as, as you, as you do this kind of work. You know, we, we were never, we never sat down and said, we want to be a standards-based grading school by, you know, 2015 or something like that. We said, here, here's, here's what we want to do. Here's what, here's where we want to go. We want it. We want to like expand equitable grading practices across our school and we would love that to mean that let's say 50% of our, our, um, our teachers or our curricular teams rather are, are doing this consistently within uh, three years, within five years. And then, and, then, and then it became really a conversation with the department chairs like how, how do you think we get there and what, is the, what does this day look like the reason that the fourth, you know, I went through those three, those four questions. The reason that the fourth question, fourth question for me is about grading as opposed to, let's say, just, um, you know, standards or curriculum or some other areas, because I, I do feel, and you, you touched on it, I think, right, that, that all these these conversations spiral out of grading. For me, that's where they all sort of meet. And because you do, you know, when you, when you are thinking to yourself, well, I need to come up with a grade book. And each grade book has to have an item in the grade book and each, each item has to have a point value and those point values need to be weighted so that, you know, that, that kind of dictates how your whole semester is gonna lay out. That's how you're gonna build units, lessons, the whole thing, right? Whereas when you say like the goal is to, you know, by the time we run out of, of days, right? <laughs> that my students will have been able to demonstrate mastery of these, let's say 10 standards um, then it's a whole different conversation about how you sort of structure your time. You, and, and I think it allows for a lot more creativity and freedom. And certainly it, that we get back to this idea of empowerment, right? The most effective models that I've seen are when this, the, the teachers have designed an interface. Um, and some of the grading platforms do this okay, um, but the, the where there's an interface that the student can interact with, where they can actually see where they're at with all of those, those standards. I mean, that's that's the conversation, right, that is most interesting in this, is when you just run into a kid in the hallway, and you ask them about their English class, and instead of telling you what, what novel they're reading, right, they tell you, oh, well, you know what, what are you working on, right? Now? Well, I'm trying to get better at you know, defending claims with evidence, like that's like, okay, yes, like that's what I want to, that's exciting. Right. And that's, and that's ultimately what, the, what, you know, because there, there's, that's something that the kid sees, hey, this is something that makes me um, more effective and more like this, this gives me power. This is, this allows me to flex. And, uh, and so, so that's really exciting to me when you can, when you design a, a model, the whole course kind of comes, kind of shakes out of this model where, where it's all about students really understanding what they're doing. And if they have, and again, it takes a lot of that anxiety too away. Like So so we, we have a whole component of our school, um, school site plan that, that addresses socio-emotional wellness and balance, right? I feel like when we talk about grading, that's a huge source of stress and anxiety for kids, whether it's the kids who are trying to get into uber competitive colleges, or whether it's kids who just don't feel like they belong because they've never, you know, had success academically. And so they've by the time they're in ninth, 10th, 11th grade, have just sort of given up on school as being something that's there for them or something that's theirs. Um, this, this model of saying, you know what, you, 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 you have a lot of power here, right? And your, your ability to demonstrate mastery, we're going to give you lots of opportunities and, and different ways you might demonstrate that mastery. Now, all of a sudden that changes the equation. It makes it so that this quiz on Friday isn't do or die. If I do grade on it, awesome. If I don't, it doesn't sink my grade. I'm, I, I still might get in to Pomona, even though I, I, I didn't do well on the quiz on Friday. Um, and I think it just, it, it creates a, a better a better sense of balance of the school. And, 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 and then you can really say, hey, we care about wellness. And students say, yeah, but I'm like doing eight hours of homework a night. Or yeah, but this teacher, you know, has, keeps failing me because because I, I don't you know, bring, bring my homework in or I'm, I'm late to class. So I keep losing points. So do you care about me?
0: Yeah, such profound examples. And I, I love that you're talking about voice and centering kind of a student voice and student um, power and ownership of this process. And I think um, one of the things that I'm curious about is you as a leader are dedicated to leading school-wide growth towards equity. You see that in the conversations about grading we've just had and I'm curious to know kind of two questions related to that. One, what are the sources of authority that inform like how you lead and how you're an equitable leader? Um, And then also like, what are the actions that if a listener is thinking like, I I wanna you know, lead equitable change in my school um, that you found to be really successful in advancing equity in your school?
1: So the, the conversation about sources of authority is for me rooted in a, and I keep it close by here. I'm not, this is not, yeah, this is a book called um moral leadership by uh Thomas Sergiovanni. Um, and I was introduced to this book probably seven years ago. Uh and he he's explicit about naming the different sources. There's lots of sources of authority, right? So my ability just to have a conversation one-on-one, maybe with one of my staff members and their orientation to me and to the school and to their profession, that might be enough. I might be able to just say, hey, I really need you to do this, it's really important to me. But that's not going to work for 130 the other 130 teachers and and might not even be sustaining right that might not be something that that teacher that teacher is like great i'll do whatever you say and then when the next person comes along and says now i need you to do this i'll say oh, okay i'll do that um but for me the, again that the, the sort of the highest um authority comes from that uh moral source right so so it's not like i i hope that nobody at my school is doing work around equity because they think that's what I want them to do. I hope they I hope they value my partnership and know that I'm there to support them and and defend their work if it comes under scrutiny. But I hope they're not doing it just because they think I want them to, because that's not sustaining. Right? The work should come from uh, the the idea that to 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 but do this would be sort of an an, an abdication of this. I think very very sacred duty that we have in public education which is to dismantle some of these obstacles whatever obstacles we can that keep our students from being successful in their learning because it's a it's a really sacred covenant i think that we have right i mean you're setting more than anything we talk about the skills of the 21st century and do we know what our students or the jobs they're even going to have all that stuff is very interesting is sort of a thought exercise but at the end of the day like if we don't graduate students who feel like they can be successful in their learning and that they can that they will be successful in their learning because they have specific strategies and skills and examples of where it's worked, then that's the ultimate failure, right? So I find that to be, I think, the most potent source of authority. it's it's again, it's not about uh, necessarily systems that we put in place or things that we do, but really, the the taking the time setting aside the um, the time to have the conversations where where folks you know very very smart professionals come to these conclusions on their own um, and and are maybe pushed to do so but but it's not about because you know the the principal says so or the or you know I want I want to do what Sean says that's not that's not sustaining.
0: I love that you're emphasizing too throughout the conversation just that moment of reflection or those moments of reflection because I think that for colleagues, you know, adults, but also young people in classes and and having that ability, like you're saying, to recognize they can be successful in their learning, both in and out of school, both now and in the future. And that, I think, is the moments where I have seen Personally, myself learn most, and also the students in my classes learn the most. Or when we actually take the time to have those reflective moments and think about what worked for me, what didn't work for me, let's have the conversation. And so that reflection, I feel like, is just such a strong theme. Whether you're you're leading a staff or you know you're facilitating a classroom learning experience, um, that reflection seems to be really critical to, to leading equity work and growing and 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 being really a, an empowered kind of agent of change for oneself.
1: Another reflection that we have, that's yeah, is is how do we model what we want to see in the teachers, right? So if I'm if I'm you know advocating for teachers to let go maybe of some of their uh, authority, you know things they've held uh, as authority um, pieces in their classroom, or if I'm advocating for teachers to look for ways that they can empower students through their um, their practices, you got to do the same thing. Right, you can't you can't be an autocrat and then <laughs> expect the other it to work the other way. So in terms of, of, of uh, sc- school leadership, um, you know, it is it is there's lots of opportunities. That's kind of always the first question that we ask when we're trying to design some of these experiences as uh, our admin team or working with our department chairs or or some of our other um, teacher leaders. How are we going to model what we want to see in the activities that we do?
0: It's such a profound. Um kind of concepts. I remember we were talking before we started recording that I used to work at an INPS school or international network for public schools, and they have these principles that they operate under. And one of them is a shared learning model. And so that's exactly what it was. It's we as adults are modeling and doing the same exact things in our own growth and development that we aim for students to do. And it opens up so many cool conversations where you can just talk to students about what you're learning and what you're doing. And we've invited students into professional development and we've kind of co-learned together. And there's so much opportunity when you're able to to work and operate in that way. So I'm, I'm so thankful that that you brought that up. I think that's super cool.
1: I'm fascinated by the idea of how to bring a stronger student voice into this, into the like actual nuts and bolts professional development. Right. I mean, I think there's like two, there's two kinds of professional development that there's a professional development where I tell you what you need to know, right. To do your job or what I think you need to know to do your job or somebody thinks you need to know. And then there's a professional development that like helps you think about how you're going to solve the problems that you need to solve to do your job. Right. And that second one, you know, there's like, there's the first one is like kind of, that's the, I think the mandatory HR training, (laughs) (laughs) like you need to watch this video for 60 minutes and answer 10 questions. The second version to me is like the much more interesting. Like, so, so if I'm ever, if we're ever designing activities for our staff or departments that doesn't fall into that second category, I know we're on the wrong track. But to me, that 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 the richness of being able to look at um, our professional practice through that lens, but with students, you know, as a part of that conversation, that's been, a it's, I, that's something that I've not figured out. And so I'm super interested in how, how to do that one the, We've tried a number of things. What what I find to be really challenging is our ways in which that a real authentic student voice can can get to the table, right? Because when you have students who are at the table, the whole the, everything changes, right? There's this like it's the it's the the <laughs> they're they're thinking about well, what am I doing here? What do they want? What do people want me to hear? What are, you know? What do, what, do, what do you want me to say? Um, so it, it, every once in a while you kind of get lightning in a bottle, but I've never quite been able to crack what it is that would be. And I, my guess is that it can't be one-off stuff. It's got to be ongoing. You've got to establish real trust. And I think it would probably be the kind of thing where, you know, a model that could be developed that as part of a, a, a kind of a regular classroom activity, whether it was using, I mean, and I think you see some of it in restorative practices. I think those can be very valuable in developing the kind of trust that would really push um, educators to um, be responsive to student voice in their practice. But in terms of, of, um, of making it happen school-wide, it's, it's, it's been something that has been elusive thus far. So I'm always interested in hearing more
0: yeah. And I, I would love for anyone listening, if you, if you have thoughts that you want to share, absolutely go for it. Um, I'd love to hear that. For me, one of the things that I've realized, um, and I'm trying to think about, there's an organization that I cannot think of the name of um, that is based out of University of Vermont that has really cool uh, student voice and youth adult partnership stuff um, that they've been doing where they have students who, again, yeah, you're right. It's it's this ongoing thing with their student groups who actually lead professional development. So it's actually almost kind of like version one of what you're talking about with PD. So it's like a transfer Mm -hmm. of information, but it's student led. And so it's like, here are the things that we see, here are the things that you could do to partner with us in curriculum development, in facilitation of learning, um, and so that's kind of one approach that I've seen. And then the other, um, just factor that I think is really interesting in the research that I've seen is uh, the kind of the tokenization of students. So, like you're saying, like bringing in students. If you have a smaller number of students than adults, your like your ratio is like one student to twenty adults in a PD. Right. That's absolutely what happens is the students kind of like, I don't even know why I'm here. And they're kind of conforming to whatever the adult dynamic is versus Mm -hmm. having like 50-50 split where now the students are like, oh, okay, the half of us are students. You know maybe my voice is uh, more meaningful and authentic and valued to the point where I can disagree with my teacher who's sitting across the table and that's okay. That's why I'm here. Um, sure. So I think that's a really interesting dynamic. And, and I'm totally learning this as well. So again, any listeners who want to share some ideas, I'd love to hear that. But I think a, a really um, valuable goal that, that you're striving for as well to, to do that more with students. So thank you for sharing that. I think we've talked about so many different things today on the podcast. And so I'm curious to know for the listeners who are kind of finishing up the episode and ready to take action, what's one starting point? Like one thing that you could... Encourage someone to kind of start the journey toward um, leading equity, equitable grading practices, whatever it is. Um, what's that first thing that they could do?
1: So, I, number one, is, I think, is, is, is taking the time to really uh, reflect on and articulate your values. Um, and, and the articulating them, I think, is a key thing because I think it's easy to sort of like think about why this is what I value and this is important to me and this is important to me, but then write them down and say them out loud, right? And then come back to them the next day right? It's not, it's not a one-off and and say them out loud again and, and, and revise them and really think about what they mean to you and whether or not they're they're they really are part of, you know, your professional identity. Um, and if they're not, then make sure they are and, and be able to articulate it and be comfortable articulating them to all kinds of people, right? To students, to your colleagues, right? Don't, don't be shy, like be proud of those values, um, that's that's, that's an important first step because then what you can do, I think is you can, is you can, um, uh, do some sort of a self-assessment of your practices and reflect okay, what, what is it that I do exactly, right. Whether it's around assessment, grading, feedback, and then how much do I, you know, how much, how much do those practices can either conform to, or, um, maybe, you know, go against what I profess to be my values. Um, And that's a, that's a, that's a really cool journey to go on because I think then, then you just, you've, you've, you've opened yourself up for me. I've seen this be kind of a a real, a real career changer, right? So I've had a number of teachers who are at that sort of 14 to 18 year mark in their career. They're really, really good, really good teachers, amazing with kids. They know their stuff. They, they have that, you know, they never break a sweat. Kids, kids love their classes are challenged. And they're, you know, they're all about equity. And then you have this conversation where you start saying, okay, well, look, let's really look at what the things that you're doing and where, where are there ways that we're maybe upholding some of these things that are, are, um, keeping kids out. And, uh, it, it's been, you know, it's rejuvenating. It's like all of a sudden, well, now, now I have a whole new sense of purpose and it's not to punish anyone for what they've been doing. I mean, we all have, like, this is a journey, right? And that's, again, modeling that idea of lifelong learning there there's tons of things as a I mean this is for me is when i look back on my eight years in the classroom there's all kinds of stuff i was doing that i'm like oh my gosh i can't believe that i was and there's there are also little seeds of things that i didn't know why i did them but they they turned out to be like that's pretty cool that i did that like i had no i had no equity framework to necessarily you know explain why i was doing that it just sort of seemed like the right thing to do and now that I think, now that I know more about this, now that I've read more things, now that I've learned more and I've seen more examples. It's like, that was pretty cool. So I think it, it's, it's a, you know, it's important not to say like, you've been doing it wrong for the last 14 years, because people should be very proud of a career in the classroom. That's like an amazing accomplishment to reach a decade, to reach 15 years. But it doesn't necessarily have to mean that you've, you're on the backstretch and that you can just sort of coast in uh, to retirement. It really, hopefully, can, can be a, a point of rejuvenation for teachers.
0: And I love that what you're naming there about lifelong learning is a perfect segue into this question that I I just ask for fun for the most part but um being lifelong learners ourselves I'm just curious what's something that you have been learning about lately it could be related to education but it could also be anything
1: Well <laughs> I'm so I'm fascinated by um like ideas of information and knowledge um so I was reading a book um it's by Susan Orlean it's called The Library I don't know if, the library book. And it's uh, it's sort of about like, it, it tells a story about the um, fire. There was a fire in 1986, the LA Public Library, the Central Library burned burned down, had a pretty bad fire. But that's just the through line through which she sort of, I think, looks at a whole bunch of different ideas of how the concept of the library has changed since, you know, the 19th century or before as a, as a public institution. And, you know, she, she's talking about um, the library is being this place where um, it, it's 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 open to everybody. Um, there's a sense of kindness that pervades it, right? You don't turn people away unless they're disruptive or whatever. And you have this, I think, this sense of like, w- we can take on problems without necessarily having any sort of like agenda or political bent. And so I was thinking about that library model and, and how much it's changed. We sort of had a re- renaissance of our library media center over the past five years we have an amazing media specialist and as we look at that as a as a model for you know what what information looks like in in you know as we move ahead and how we process information we hold information i'm very interested in these ideas of just like what it means to know something i guess it's the old epistemology classes I took when I was a philosophy major, but I'm still very interested in this idea of like, what does it even mean to know something, to hold knowledge when I've got, you know, the the greatest library in the, the world's ever seen in my pocket. Um, and I'm I just, I'm really fascinated always about these. I like anything I can read where it's like talking about, like, what is, what is the nature of, of knowing? How is that evolving? And how does information, um, you know, empower people? Cause that gets back to this idea again, for both professionally. And personally, is I'm I'm sort of all about it, all about empowering.
0: That is super fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. And now I really want to read that book. So that's going on my to <laughs> read list. Um, the last question I have for you is: Where can listeners learn more about with you, connect with you, um, find find your school online, so that they can learn more?
1: Well, I I'm you know I'm not a, I don't have a huge social media footprint. I am on Twitter, and I get a lot of great ideas. Um, I'm at uh, Capital P Priest Capital S Capital M. Um, and, you know, I think I, I, I like to follow a lot of um, sort of voices in ed, ed, education, voices in equity. Um, I, I learn a lot and, and sort of go down a lot of rabbit holes that way. That's probably my best social media. Um, and then, you know, our, our school, Sequoia High School, is in Redwood City, California. You can see a lot of um, work that our department has done just kind of browsing around the website. What I'll also do is I'll share with you the uh, self-assessment tool that we created. For our um, teachers, as part of that department work that we did around equitable grading, I think it's a—it's a, it's a it's just a Google form. It's a real, but it's—it again, it's—it's it's something that you can copy and and create uh, or or modify for your needs if you're in school leadership or um, in uh, on the education forefront.
0: That sounds amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that, and thank you for this conversation today, Sean.
1: Great. Thanks a lot. Good to be here.
0: Thanks for listening. Amazing educators. If you loved this episode, you can share it on social media and tag me at Lindsay Beth Alliance or leave a review of the show. So leaders like you will be more likely to find it to continue the conversation. You can head over to our time for teachership Facebook group and join our community of educational visionaries until next time leaders continue to think big act brave and be your best self.